Good. Let's pray together. Father, we ask as we open your Bible again that you would speak to us. We do thank you for this book, uh, From Heaven, uh, written by you through human authors, every page, every word orchestrated by you, and we pray that it would do us much good this morning. Instruct us, encourage us, uh, provoke us, reassure us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is part five out of six of our I Am Joseph series. So just one more to go next Sunday. You'll remember that three of the message, messages are episodes in Joseph's life uh, of specific moments, and three of them are themes from throughout his life. Uh, today is the theme of God's providence or God's sovereignty throughout his life. And the three headings we are using are seeing God's providence in Joseph's life, learning from God's providence in Joseph's life, and when we don't understand. In terms of seeing God's providence in Joseph's life, his life was a roller coaster, was it not? And God was as much in the lows as he was in the highs. Let's take a look. Joseph started life pretty high as the favorite son, with dreams about a future which would involve him having great influence. And then things begin to crash. His brothers turn on him, nearly kill him. Then there's a bit of an up as Reuben and then Judah uh, keep him from being killed. Then another low, he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. And I can imagine him there in the slave market. He thinks he, things are pretty low. Things get lower because the guy who, who purchased him as a slave is none other than Pharaoh's enforcer, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. Joseph must have thought it's bad enough going into slavery, but to get a real tough dude, a hardcore dude like this is my boss, this is going to be tricky. Things are low, and then things taken up because God gives him favor in Potiphar's household, and, and Potiphar entrusts him with significant responsibility. Things are on the up, and then they crash when he gets falsely accused of attempted rape of Potiphar's wife. Things get even worse. He gets thrown into prison, and then there's another lift. He gets put in charge of the prisoners, gets given responsibility. No doubt with that came some kind of privilege. Things continue to be on the up. He finds himself in the same wing of the jail as the Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. And he interprets their dreams. And the cupbearer, who's going to get out, Joseph says, mention me to Pharaoh. Remember me. Joseph actually says, to get me out of this house, this pit that I'm in. But he's forgotten. Another plunge. He has to wait two whole years before he's remembered another two whole years in prison. And then the day comes when the cupbearer does remember him and mentions him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, in a matter of an hour or two, whips him out. He has to have a change of clothes and a shave. And he's before Pharaoh. He interprets two of Pharaoh's dreams. That's on the up. Then he leaps up. He gets appointed prime minister of Egypt. And then things continue on the up. There is, a, albeit a rather complex... But there is a wonderful family reunion uh, reconciliation in the years ahead. This is a roller coaster, and God is as sovereign and providential in the dips as he is in the peaks. Heading number two, what can we learn from 
God's providence in Joseph's life. Well, toward the end of the story, Joseph's still prime minister. Uh, Reconciliation has begun with his family. We'll get to that next Sunday in part six, the finale. But in his encounters with his brothers, Joseph says a number of things that are super instructive for us when it comes to understanding God's providence generally and God's providence applied to our lives. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 45, uh, 46 and 50, just a few extracts. So Joseph says to his brothers, chapter 45, verse 5, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. To preserve a remnant on earth and to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, God, not Pharaoh, He, God, made me ruler of the land of Egypt. I'm going to use Pharaoh, but it was God. Chapter 46, verse 3. God's now speaking to Jacob. That's Joseph's father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. It's the nation of Israel. Chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to his brothers... Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? So just a heads up, part of the wonderful truth of God's sovereignty, God's providence, is that he's God, not you, not me. We're going to bump up against that in a few minutes as we unpack this. But Joseph's got it. He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I'm loving this already. The doctrine of God's providence enables us to comfort one another, speak kindly to one another, to diffuse distress, diffuse anger, Because God is in control. Hallelujah. So what do we learn here from the words of Joseph about God's providence? Well, first up, we learn that God is all-powerful. The whole thrust, the gist of what Joseph is saying to his brothers is that there is a God who is all-powerful. He's working all things for good, including everything that I've gone through as Joseph over the last 20-odd years including the evil actions of you, my brothers. It was evil what you did. The evil actions of Potiphar's wife. It was wicked slander what she did. It included the kind actions of Reuben and then Judah keeping him alive. The kind actions of Potiphar. He was kind not to just kill him, but to throw him in prison. It included the forgetfulness of the cupbearer. I mean, what a rookie error to forget the guy who got you out of prison, interpreted your dream. 
He forgot him. Man, Joseph would have been tempted to be furious with him. God even uses forgetfulness. Not to mention, what else does God use? Not to mention all the right place at the right time, God incidences throughout Joseph's life. Not to mention God's sovereignty over the forces of nature. Nature, There's going to be seven plump years for Egypt and seven lean years in terms of harvest. That's a sovereign God controlling the forces of nature. Joseph's presentation here of an all-powerful God lines up with what the Bible teaches about God elsewhere. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah 46. I am God, says God. I will accomplish all my purpose. No buts. I'm God and I get my way. Ephesians 1, I work all things. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. What he wills happens. 1 Timothy 6, he's, he's referred to as the blessed and only sovereign. Daniel 4, one of my favorites. No one can stay his hand. He's all powerful. Now there are three quite common mini heresies that teach God is a bit all-powerful, not fully all-powerful. And they're quite nice-sounding heresies. I call them mini heresies. They're quite cute heresies. Uh, the first one is the watchmaker worldview. That's where God's, God's hand, God's will, is limited by some universal principles, Moral principles, physical principles, or laws that God's put in place. So the thinking goes, God has made the world like a watchmaker, and part of his creation is he's put the laws of nature in place, and he's given uh, man, women, mankind, uh, free will. And then he winds it all up, and steps away and watches. And he says, listen, if you stay within my laws, moral and physical laws, Odds are you're going to be okay. It's pretty bad luck, however, if you get caught in a natural disaster uh, and or if you get caught in the consequences of evil actions of a person. And as much as I'd like to help out, I can't. My hands are tied. Like I've set this thing up, laws of nature, set this thing up, free will of man, that's going to involve some evil. Sorry, sorry, people, my hands are tied. I ache for you as you're going through it, but I'm not responsible. Set this thing up. Watchmaker worldview. The second one is the boxing ring worldview. It's where God and the devil are slugging it out in the ring, and no one, neither one, is showing clear domination over the other. Round one goes to God, round two to the devil, three to God, four to God, five to the, the devil, and man, you just hope that your patch of trouble happens in one of the rounds that God is winning. And the third one is the human swing vote motif. A swing vote is the, is the deciding vote. It's close, but the swing vote takes it. Uh, to continue the boxing analogy, God has, God and the devil are slugging it out in the ring, and us believers, us Christians, are in the crowd. And uh, he has delegated to us, really, swing vote power for each round. And if our prayers 
are sincere enough, and if our faith is pure enough, then God wins the rounds. And if it's not, he loses it, but he's not to blame. We are for our lack of prayer and our lack of faith. I'm smiling, but I think that one is absolutely horrific. From a pastoral point of view, that's exactly what you should be telling people. I do not think so. People who are in trouble, it's your lack of faith. It's your lack of prayer. It's ridiculous. It's not biblical. In fact, all these three, they sound quite cute and nice. They're close, but no cigar. The Bible's clear. God is all-powerful. This gives us a whole set of other questions. That he's all-powerful, but bad things do happen. But we cannot say that the Bible teaches watchmaker boxing ring or human swing vote. Certainly our prayers count, faith counts, but they never trump the providence, the power, the total power of God. They are, a, they are a valiant attempt to get God off the hook when things go wrong. But they're not biblical. God, the Bible teaches God is all-powerful over all things. Even, this is where we're adding to this, this point, even... God is sovereign and providential over bad things as well as good. So a question for you, was God as much in control of the dips in Joseph's life as the rises in Joseph's life? We have to say yes. When we get to read the story, it's clearly yes. And again, this lines up with what the Bible teaches more broadly about God being in control of both the bad and the good. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Lamentations 3, 37 is, is it not from the mouth of the Lord that good and bad come? 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down and he raises up. He makes poor and he makes rich. Now, we're not saying that there aren't other factors involved. The devil, our responsibility to make, make decisions. But we're saying, you've got to choose, is God really God or not? Is this, is it, to be sovereign God, that means you really are overall. And many things and true responsibilities that we have can happen within God's sovereignty, but still he is overall and he does get his way. So ultimately, it is the Lord who either permits or instigates both the good and the bad. I think sometimes he permits, sometimes he instigates. There's passages in scripture when it's clearly the devil instigating, but it's the Lord permitting. 1 Peter 4.19 So then, those who suffer according to God's will. That verse is telling us that there's some suffering that does happen within God's ultimate will. Exodus 21, 13. This is interesting. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. Just a little cameo phrase there. If God lets it happen. That, that's... That's a serious tip of the hat to God's sovereignty over not just the good things, but the difficult things as well. Now, all of this raises questions, does it not? All of this would be scary stuff if it was not for the next thing that Joseph is teaching his brothers that the Bible teaches about God that God is not just all powerful, but he's all good. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's the repeated refrain throughout scripture that God is wholly good. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.4, 
All God's ways are just. He does no wrong. Upright and just is he. James 1.17, every good gift is from God. There's no shadow in him. There's no shadow or turning. He's fundamentally wholly good. He himself is, Im- is impossible of doing anything other than good. To us, it might look like a bit of a cir- circuitous route. He, he is wholly good. Now, some argue, and, and you might be in this place, especially if you're exploring Christianity and you haven't had much personal experience with, with, with a heavenly father in your life. You don't have a track record to, to test and prove that he is good. It's quite understandable for some of us to argue that God is actually bad. Or you may stop short of saying he's bad. You may just say, he's not wholly good. How can he be wholly good if he lets the kind of stuff happen that he lets happen? It is really hard, I know, to reconcile a good God with bad things happening. And I don't think we'll be able to do that until we get to heaven and God gives us more perspective on this. So stay with me. I think it is hard to reconcile a good God with bad things. However, I think it's much harder, I think impossible, but certainly much harder to say, to conclude that God is a bit bad or properly bad. Here's why. And I'll just stay in the realm of philosophy uh, rather than Bible for a moment. If God is bad, if God really is bad, how come so much good happens in the world that he made? I mean, you, you know, I know some bad stuff happens, but there's so much good that happens. That doesn't add up to me if God is bad. Secondly, if God is bad and we are create, created in his image that the Bible says we are, how come we've got this innate aversion to bad things and bad behavior? How come we've got this moral compass inside of us when someone steals our stuff, we don't applaud? That's so cool, buddy. Good job. When someone steals our parking place at the Rio, you know, you're just heading in and nips in. How come we don't go, oh, nice, nice move. No, something, something's in us. This is not cool. We feel violated. And then, drawing from the Bible again, if God is bad, why did he send his son Jesus to die on the cross to bring about an ultimate end to all suffering, to make a way for us to go to the place where there is no suffering? It doesn't sound like a bad God. So we don't know for sure why God does allow bad, why a good God does allow bad things to happen. We don't know for sure. But one thing we can be sure about, it's not because he's bad or mean or doesn't care. He's proven that he does totally care and want to bring about an end to all suffering through sending his son Jesus to die a horrific death on the cross. So he's all good. He's all powerful over good and bad. He's all good. What else do we learn from what Joseph says directly or implies, we learn that God's timing is perfect. Joseph is a man now in his 40s, 17 years, late 30s probably, early 40s. He's been through a lot. And his whole, the whole gist of what he's saying to his brother is God has worked things out according to his perfect timing. He's a man settled in that. Joseph had a number of delays and false starts in his life. 
But with hindsight, he realized and we realized that God's watch keeps perfect time. Now, friends, here, here I'm speaking now as a, as a friend, uh, as a, a fellow believer who, who's had some experience in this. God's usual pattern, God's standard, standard MO, modus operandi, for your life and my life, is to go slower than we would like. That's standard. And we're a bunch of dummies. Every time he does it, we go, <laughs> what's going on? Standard MO of God is to delay when we think it should move forward. That's standard. It's unusual for something to go at your pace or at a pace quicker than you would like. Has anyone else found that? Why does God usually take things slower? Why are the setbacks, delays, frustrations? Well, I would say from my own life, and I'd say from what I read in Scripture and hear from others, that God is more committed to the man than he is the mission or the woman than he is the mission. Because if he gets the man, the mission gets done. If he gets the woman, the mission gets done. We obsess about the mission. God obsesses about the man, about the woman. Motives need to be honed. God reliance needs to be deepened. Like when stuff is just going slow. Why is this taking so long? Why is this taking so long? It, it's, it's a gravitational pull to lean into God. To lean into his fatherhood. Oh, Father, you know things I don't. Because you've got two choices when things don't go your way. Just to get miffed with God. Like Thomas, well, unless I see this. Or you can go worshipful. You can go, hey, Lord, I... I knew there was going to be a point when my lack of godness and your total godness <laughs> is shown. And I think you should do this now. You clearly don't think this should happen. You know what that makes me? It makes me worshipful. You are God, I'm not. And you're, a, you're an all-powerful. What was Joseph part five? He's all-powerful and he's all good. That's what the Bible says you are. I'm going to believe what the Bible says you are, not my emotions say you are. Going to believe what this book says about you. Strengthens on God reliance. At number four, we learn from Joseph that we need to be active within God's providence. So there's nothing in Joseph in, in, in his life that, where he took his foot off the gas. I mean, he waited patiently and actively, but when he was in prison, he was busy. When he was in Potiphar's house as a Slave, chief slave, he, he gave himself to it. He interpreted dreams in prison. Imagine, I, I think he would have been not in the mood to interpret anyone's dreams in prison. He stayed sharp in his prophetic gifts. So when two years later, when he was called in front of Pharaoh, he was, he was on point with his prophetic dream interpreting gift. This is in line with what the rest of the Bible teaches Within God's providence, an understanding of God's sovereignty and his providence doesn't make us passive, it makes us active. Like, it makes me pray. The fact that God is sovereign and he knows what's going to happen tomorrow and that he's all-powerful, that makes me want to pray. You say, well, why pray if God knows what's going to happen, he's going to get his will anyway? Let me throw it back on you. Why on earth would you pray if God wasn't sovereign? Why would you waste breath in praying to a God who can't do what you're asking? 
you think I'm crazy, you're more crazy. <laughs> no, the fact that God is sovereign, God is sovereign, and he says, pray like crazy. It's like, oh, okay, wonderful. And God, I don't, I mean, I don't fully understand it, but some, you're saying, that you're, the Bible says you are sovereign over all things. You always get your way. But then you say, pray. And, and, and you say, ask me for daily bread. And, and ask for provision. So within your sovereignty, and ask for me to do things. So you're saying within your sovereignty, pr- prayer is somehow part of the outworking of your sovereignty. Thank you so much for inviting me into the outworking of your sovereign plan. What, what a privilege. And of course, if you're a bit on yourself, it's like, well, I only want to do something that's really meaningful. My prayers. I'm just, let's not go there. I want to be, Lord, these are my prayers, but you, that you've invited me to pray them. Yeah. And as I pray them, that, what a privilege. You, you say that, that. Because the Bible, the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's something about our prayers that, that count. Pray, they come on us to pray, we pray. And it's the kindness of God. If he was just sovereign he said, don't worry, I've got this. We wouldn't have the privilege of leaning into God in prayer. And knowing him, having our burdens lifted. Spurgeon said prayer is like walking in, uh, walking from the summer's sun into a refreshing waterfall. It's like walking in the height of Maryland summer from a 90-90 day, 90 temperature, 90 humidity. You open your door and you walk into an AC home. Oh, what a relief. Prayers like that. We're invited to pray. Prayer is the slender arm, the, the, the nerve, the, the slender nerve that moves the arm of omnipotence. Be active in God's sovereignty. God knows who's going to become Christians and who's not. That's what the Bible teaches. But we're told to preach the word. We're part of the outworking of God's plan. Who's the hero of the story? It's God. We get to join in with Him. So we've got a smile on our face. We're on the side of the sovereign God. Let's get busy, people. You see, the, the, the doctrine of God's providence or God's sovereignty is a massive culture-shaping doctrine for an individual believer and a church. When you believe God's sovereign, it makes you personally and us collectively both peaceful and purposeful. Let's go get them. We're on the winning team. But if things don't quite work out as we think, it's not, we don't like turn our accusing fingers at each other church isn't going the way I want, it's your fault, you should do more, pray more, give more, no, no, we're purposeful, come on, let's pray more, do more, give more, but when it doesn't quite turn out like that, we're peaceful in God's sovereignty, it's Father, you've got this, you're going to make sure this gets done, thank you, we're laboring with you, but this isn't going quite at the pace we hoped, but thank you that your watch keeps perfect time, and we're lining up with your TikTok, not ours. Peaceful, purposeful. So it creates a beautiful culture in a church. When we're on stuff, but we're not driven. We exhort and urge, but we're not heavy-handed. We're not apathetic. We're active. active, But we don't shoot our wounded. It, it creates for a beautiful atmosphere. It creates for a family, fatherly atmosphere. On mission as a family Resting in God's sovereignty. In Acts 27, uh, the Apostle Paul is on a ship. 
prisoner. Roman soldiers, fellow prisoners. He's on a ship. And uh, God speaks to him and he says, you're going to have a shipwreck, but not a life will be lost. So he says to the captain of the ship, God showed me we're going to have a shipwreck, but he says not one life will be lost. You'd think that would be the end of the story, because God said not one life will be lost. It isn't. Paul then says, so let's get this ship ship shape. Let's chuck off the stuff we don't need. Let's be ready when we run aground. God says not one life will be lost. And within that, they get active and busy. Because God said not one life will be lost. So we're going to work with him in that direction. It's all his glory. He'll see it good. But he calls us to work with him in that direction. Peaceful and purposeful. Could we say that? Say peaceful. Go, ah, peaceful. No, you don't want to say that. I pushed it too far. Peaceful and purposeful. (laughs) Moving swiftly on. Number five. God's providence frees us to entrust revenge to God. How are you doing on that? Have you got some people in your life who've really done the dirty on you? And they're getting away with it. Aren't they? Joseph had people do him immense harm. And Joseph said to his brothers, do not fear. These brothers, not colleagues, brothers. They nearly killed him. They were going to take his, take back, they're going to go back to Jacob and say a wild animal got him, died. Left him in a pit to be devoured by wild animals. By the skin of their teeth, they decided not to kill him. And decided and said to sell him into slavery. This was terrible brotherhood. I mean, the, 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 the depth of betrayal here. Can you think of anything deeper, really? This is deep, deep betrayal. And he said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. The doctrine of God's providence has worked in Joseph's heart to a place where he doesn't want to take revenge on them. He gives them a bit of a hard time. We'll get to that next week. Toys with them a bit. Slaps them around a bit. But oh man, he entrusted revenge to God. He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? I just want to push this. I know some of us are pretty tender in this area, but actually you need a push, not the stroke. If you're struggling to, for, to forgive someone, you want to take revenge, are you God? Are you in the place of God? Uh, because Romans 12, 19 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Some things God says that belong to him, some things belong to us. Vengeance, revenge is one of the things that belongs to him. Don't go there. You'll end up being the skeleton at your own feast. You know, you're trying to take revenge on them. You, you want to bite and devour them, you'll bite and devour yourself. You'll, you'll never win. It'll be, it'll be deadly for you. More importantly, God says don't do it. I'm just pointing out the benefit if you, don't, if you do what God says. If you do what God says. Vengeance is my, oh, what a relief, Lord. What a relief. Because you'll do a better job than I will as well. Because you're perfectly just and perfectly holy. What they did, I'm angry, but I know it infuriates you. I know you'll do 
Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We can entrust to him. He might do it in this life. He might do it in the, in the next. And sometimes we can be tempted to think, oh, but they got away in this life. Do you know how long this life is compared to all eternity? See my Bible here. The width of one page. Let's go thin pages. Let's go for a thick page. I've got some paper clips on this page. Can you see the width of this page? That's how long your life is compared to the width of this room that we're in. Life on earth compared to all eternity. If someone doesn't get their just desserts in this life, according to what you think, fear ye not. God will get it right, either in this life or the next. Jacob's reputation, I often think about what Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, her slander to Joseph was extraordinary. She didn't have, you know, there wasn't the internet and social media back then, but she pulled an appalling reputational assassination on Joseph. This man tried to rape me. This young Hebrew boy, he tried to rape me, Potiphar's wife, and she was the one who was making all the moves. You'll remember that from part two in the series, Seduction. The reputational damage to Joseph would have been immense. But God repaired that and brought him through. It's a non-issue. God brought him through. If your reputation, if you've taken a hit, entrust it to God. He'll bring you through. Number six, God's providence helps us forgive others and ourselves. We're going to push that one to next week. That's what next one's about, forgiveness, reconciliation. Heading three. Finally, what when we don't understand? Because I hope at this stage, the question mark about how can a good God allow bad things, I hope it's got smaller, a bit smaller. It won't have disappeared altogether. So what when we don't understand? Well, this is how I approach it. I approach it philosophically and theologically. So philosophically, I remember, when I don't understand what God's doing, I remember that I am comfortable with other mysteries. So apparently light, how light works, it works as both particles and waves, and apparently we don't understand how that can be, light can be both. I'm okay with that, I don't need to understand. There's stuff I don't know. Lord, when you do stuff I don't understand, to be consistent, I've got to say I'm okay with that. Uh, the Trinity, the spiritual mysteries, how can God be three in one? Three but one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God. Not sure but I'm okay with that. It helps me to remember that I'm comfortable with other mysteries. Secondly, I've realized that seeing isn't believing. So radio waves. I can't see them, but I know they exist. I don't have to see something to know it exists. And when I can't see what God's doing, when I can't see a good reason for what God's doing, it doesn't mean that that good reason doesn't exist. It just means that I can't see it. And thirdly, I remember the gap. Isaiah 55 says, his ways are higher than my ways. Uh, God is God and I'm not. There is a gap between us. At some point, I'm going to feel that. I'm gonna, the, the, the fact that I'm not God and he is, is going to kick in. And I've got a choice in that moment, whether to get grumpy and entitled or to get worshipful. We must get worshipful. The gap, we worship. Wow, Lord, this really points out the difference between you and me. 
what a God you are. I'm not God. I'm very content with that arrangement. And I don't need to know everything. I'm not God. I've got that. You are. I'm sorry for this God wannabe that rises up in me. And thank you for these huge things that I don't understand. It kind of knocks it back down. It makes me realize I'm not God. You are. What a relief. I worship you, Father. Because although I want to be God in this instance, and no, I actually don't want to be God at all. I'm so glad that you are. The benefits of you being God and me not, oh, they're so immense that when I come up with a situation where I wish I was God, it's just stupid talk. That's philosophically speaking. Uh, theologically speaking, I remember Romans 8, 28. I bet you do as well. God works all things for the good of those who love him. What a promise. We've got it in black and white. I think uh, Michael Eaton, the late Michael Eaton said, the message of Romans 8.28 is that when everything looks like it's going wrong, it's actually going right. What a magnificent promise. What a promise. You've said it. You're working all things for my good. I don't quite get how you're doing that, but I believe you're doing that. Back to you being God and me not. And you're not just God. You're an all-loving, all-powerful Father. How did Jesus teach them to pray? Our all-loving, who art in, all-powerful. Right there, the doctrine of God's providence. I've got a Father, all-loving, who's in heaven, all-powerful. Mm. Secondly, I remember heaven. Stuff might not get fixed in this life like I think it should. That's okay. The weight, the, the center of gravity of the Christian faith is much more in the next life than it is in this. I'm not just living for this life. And thirdly, we must not, I must not doubt God's character. When stuff goes wrong, the big temptation is to doubt God's character. When the storm hit the disciples on the lake, Jesus was sleeping in the boat. They thought they were about to drown. First words out of their mouth were, don't you care? It's like pressure and pain forces. Don't you, we doubt God's character. But it immediately becomes a character debate. Friends, we need to settle up front before the heat comes that God's character is perfectly good. And don't judge prematurely what God's doing in your life. He cares. He's a good God. How do we know he's good? Like maybe you are just at your wit's end. There is so much distress and pain in your life that you're sitting here thinking, I want to believe this, but I'm in the thick of it. How, PJ, I, I need proof. Because it doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. I need proof that God is truly for me. I can give it to you. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, gave him up for you. Will he not graciously also give us all things? The, the cross of Jesus, the fact that Jesus went to the cross for you, that is total proof that God is for you. He gave you the best gift he possibly could. We cannot then say that he's turned mean on us. We cannot then say that if he gave us something this big and this precious, that he's, he's, he's spitefully and mean, meanly going to, disinterestedly, going to allow us to be kicked around in these areas. No, I've got the cross. I've got Jesus Christ. It is proof. Nail-scarred hands. Communion. The bread and the wine, it's tangible proof that this God gave himself for me. You are a loving, kind, heavenly father to send your son, Jesus. And Jesus, you are a kind, loving, all-powerful, 
co-God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to give yourself on my behalf. I'm safe with you. I don't understand what you're doing always, Father. But what I do know is that you're not allowing these things to happen because you don't love me. You've proved you love me by giving your only son for me. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take on this wonderful truth, this comforting truth that enables us to speak kindly, not angrily to those who've hurt us. It enables to rest in you and be comforted. Thank you for this truth of God's providence in my life. Thank you for how we've seen it in Joseph's life. Pray for everyone listening, we would be assured and certain in the knowledge of your kind providence in our lives. In your name we pray.